This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Now, I'm giving you a fair warning right now. We are moving into the deep thinking PhD part of the program. This is one of, if, if you're sort of listening casually, you may not be able to keep up, keep up with this next part, not because you're not bright, because this is pretty deep stuff. I'm going to be honest with you. But it's a fascinating topic, and it's something that I've thought about more than a few times over the years, and that is this. How does a, a soccer player jump on a long cross across the field and have his head land at the same spot as the ball? How does he time it? How does he make those two things intersect? How does a baseball player on a flat run catch a fly ball? How does a football player do it? How does a hockey goalie make a glove save on a, on a slap shot? Because you're talking about an object moving in one way in random space and you having to get to some place to intercept it. These are, these are unbelievably comp- complex calculations that our brains are making to put our head or our hand or our foot or whatever else in the same place as something else that is moving. It's math and it's physics and it's all kinds of stuff that I simply can't understand. And every time I start to think about it, I get a headache. But I thought that maybe, maybe there would be someone who could try and explain this to us. And I found that person. Dr. William Warren is a chancellor's professor in Brown University's Cognitive, Linguistic, and Psychological Sciences Department. He's someone who studied this kind of stuff as deep and as mentally exploding as it is. Uh, Dr. Warren joins me now. Doctor, thanks for doing this today. Hi, how are you, Scott? Listen, I'm doing really well, but as the, even as I introduce this, my brain starts to hurt because these are really complex things. But here's the thing. I've been watching over the last couple of years, especially up here in Toronto, and there is a guy who plays center field for the Toronto Blue Jays named Kevin Pillar, and game after game after game, he makes these ridiculous, unbelievable catches. And all I keep thinking is, how does the brain work that would allow him on a line drive to judge where that ball is going to go and to get himself in that same position and then cause himself to intercept, to land at that same space at the same time. Can you try, take a few minutes if you need to, but can you try to explain how our brain does that? I'll give it a shot. (laughs) Uh, So this is clearly one of those things that people have thought about for decades, right? Watching people make these amazing catches um, or intercept slap shots or whatever it is. Um, and the, the kind of the expert athlete really has a high acuity of being able to do this, right? So they're able to catch those balls under extreme conditions. And the, the image that we all have of this, I think, is, is kind of what you said, which is the brain is doing complex calculations. You know, you see the ball get hit. Um, you make some prediction about where the ball is going to land and then you run to that spot and catch the ball. And that's the image that everyone has about uh, how an outfielder does it. And I think a lot of that image comes from this famous catch by Willie Mays, the first game of the 1954 World Series. The backwards catch against the wall, right. The, the, the catch, yep, right? the catch. So he, he saw the ball get hit, he turned his back on the ball, ran to the center field wall, turned around and caught the ball, right? And, and basically then the Giants went on to win that game of the series. So that's the image that we all have. But in fact, if you watch that video carefully, Willie Mays is looking over his shoulder much of the time, especially as he zeroes in at the end to, to make the catch. And if you watch any outfielder um, trying to catch a fly ball, they're doing what the coach always says to do, which is keep your eye on the ball. So that's the trick, right? If you were able to make a prediction, you wouldn't have to keep your eye on the ball. 
Um, so I study visual perception and the control of action. And we know that if you're looking at a ball from 30 meters and the, the batter hits the ball, the visual system does not have the ability to perceive the distance and velocity of the ball uh, with the accuracy that would be needed to make a prediction of where the ball is going to land. So something else has to be going on. Right, and, and what we're talking about here is, again, you, we're uh, taking a baseball diamond, for example. There are, uh, I haven't done the math on how many square feet there would be both covering the field but also say for how high can a player jump 10 feet up in the air so if you were to do that turn the baseball diamond into a cube essentially there's millions of possible square feet where that ball could land and where you have to be at that exact moment when it arrives exactly so how do you do that and so the, the kind of there's an alternative theory which is sometimes rather than making a prediction about where the ball is going to land this is called online control you're, using, you're watching the ball all the time, you're using information from the ball that you see from the ball's motion, and you're just tracking that information, and it will take you to the right place at the right time if you can run that fast. So here's, a, here's, a, here's an attempt to try to explain that. So here's the best theory. It's called the optical acceleration cancellation theory. And so imagine you're in the outfield, you see the ball get hit, and you're watching the ball rise in the air. So imagine that you're sighting that ball down the barrel of a rifle, right? So you've got a scope sight, you've got that ball in the scope sight, and you have to run forward or backward so that you keep that ball in the scope sight and that the rifle barrel is rising at a constant speed. So if the rifle barrel is rising, accelerating as it goes up, that means the ball is going to land behind you. If the rifle barrel is decelerating as it goes up, that means the ball is going to land in front of you. So you have to run forward or backward to make that rifle barrel rise at a constant velocity. And then you'll be at the right place at the right time to catch the ball. This must, though, when, when an outfielder or anybody, I mean, again, take any athlete and any kind of thing, because we're talking fast speeds here, this must be, how, how quickly can our brain actually make these calculations and begin to decide where to go or where we need to be? How fast does that happen? Yeah. It has to happen within a, like a split second. Um, you have you know, a few seconds while the ball is in the air, depending on the, on the height of the hit. And um, so you have to make that decision in a few seconds. And by watching the ball rise, you know, again, if, that, if the ball is rising, so it's increasing its speed, it's going to land behind you, so you should run backward. And if the ball is rising at a decelerating rate, then you should run forward because it's going to land in front of you. So by kind of jogging back and forth and keeping that ball rising at a what looks like a constant velocity, you'll end up at the same place that the ball does when it hits the ground. Does this... So it's, a, it's, it's a trick, right? It's like we are outsmarting. We're kind of using uh, a strategy, a clever strategy, uh, so the brain doesn't have to do all those calculations. Does, do these calculations, is there a particular part of the brain that is working to make this happen? Does this happen in a specific spot? Well, it's got, it, it involves a whole pathway, right? So from... Uh, from your eye, from the retina, uh, through the visual cortex uh, to areas that are, are perceiving motion. And then it's got to get into the motor cortex and down to your feet, right, so that you know how to run and how to apply forces with your feet 
in the right direction at the right at the right times. So there's a whole network of brain areas that are involved in controlling that behavior. Okay, but some people, as we know, because you t- you alluded to right off the top to elite athletes, some people can do this exceptionally well. Other people can't do it at all. So at wh- where is it along the pathway, or is there one place that separates the great people who are able to, the Willie Mays, from the other person who can't do it? Where, where's the breakdown or where's the strength? So I think it's, you know, there's the, the, the highly skilled athlete has got to have all of the ducks in a row, right? It's got to have every piece of this chain. So they've got to have very high visual acuity so they can see the ball's motion, be very sensitive to the ball's motion. They have to be able to run really fast, right? They have to be able to also make judgments really quickly, right? So if they're, they, they have to learn the strategies. One of the things I think that's hard about this is that kids have a terrible time doing this, right? It takes a long time to learn to catch a ball. And that's because we don't really know, I mean, I think this, is, this theory is helping us figure out what the best way to teach a kid, you know, to catch the ball is. And so maybe having an understanding of the strategy would help coaches uh, coach a, a kid who's learning how to play baseball uh, the best strategy to use. But it's going to take a lot of practice, right, to get that whole loop uh, tuned up to the point where you can make those spectacular catches. Now, that said, and you're absolutely right, but that said, there are kids that pick it up very quickly, and there are kids that, uh, I'll use a word that I know gets thrown around, that are uncoordinated, and they never, you know, they always struggle with it. So is, is it a, do some of us just have more finely tuned parts of that apparatus within our head? I think that's true. I think some some kids are kind of more visually motor, right? And other kids might be might have other strengths. So there is a certain amount of uh, kind of innate ability that's involved here, but there's also just a huge amount of practice. And keeping your eye on the ball. I mean, I think that's one of the hardest things to do when you're running and trying to track the ball at the same time. But it's funny because when we think about elite athletes, generally what we're thinking about is their physical gifts. And certainly they would have those. But what you're describing, though, is also a brain that is functioning at a different level in some way. So when you talk about, you know, when people want to throw around the idea of dumb jocks, well, it may, it may not be the same part of the brain that is solving math problems, but in a sense, they are solving math problems. It's a different genius. That's right. I mean, it's a, it's a clever strategy that, so that um, you can solve a math problem without having to do the math. And I think that that characterizes a lot of our behavior. I mean, we learn these clever strategies so that we... Um, can do it smoothly and efficiently without a lot of overhead in our calculations. I have long, I'm not a mathematician by any stretch, believe me. I'm, uh, I'm the furthest thing from a mathematician. That's why I went into journalism in the first place, because I couldn't do math like all the rest of the people in my line of work. But I've often thought there would be a study, and I don't know if there, this has ever been done. I have this theory that the great athletes by and large, would have in school been really good at geometry? Because this is all angles, and this is reading angles and figuring out angles. Is there anything to suggest that that would be the case? You know, I don't know of any study that shows that. Um, but it's clear that there are some, some children who are more spatially oriented hmm. and other children who are more verbally oriented. And I would, I would suspect that more spatially oriented kids would do better at these sorts of fine perceptual motor skills. So I think you're right. I mean, the idea is it's not just brawn, right, that, that makes you a great athlete. It's getting these fine perceptual motor skills, the timing, the visual acuity, knowing how to zero in on just the right information at the right moment to, to lead you to that successful performance. If I was not, let's say, a great um, sprinter, I could work at it and get myself, I'm still not going to be Usain Bolt, but I could strengthen myself enough that I could become decent at it. 
Can you strengthen this part of your brain? Can you strengthen this pattern as you describe it from your eyes through your all the rest to get really good or can you only make yourself marginally better if you're not already there? I think like any skill, practice, 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 and you can make yourself significantly better. So there's, there's increasing evidence about how plastic the brain is. That is that having a lot of experience in doing a task, the brain develops new pathways and strengthens connections that, uh, that allow you to do that task better and better. And so it's just, often it's just a matter of the number of hours that you devote to that skill. And that, that's the key uh, to, to improving. Should have asked this a moment ago, but since the time of Ronald Reagan, when he was in office, we heard about the Star Wars missile defense, about shooting missiles out of the sky, intercepting them, and we, we had the Scud missiles in the Gulf War. Is this the same basics physics and principle? It's, it's not quite the same as the outfielder, but it's very sim- uh, similar to intercepting uh, like a pass in hockey. So take, take, think about the puck on the ice, right? So player makes a shot. The puck is going toward the goal, and you're on defense. And how do you intercept that puck? So, that, again, you're at the right place at the right time. But now the, the puck isn't flying through the air like a baseball. It's flat on the ice. And so it's a different kind of problem. But there's a similar kind of clever solution that the brain uses, which is rather than, you know, if you skated straight toward the puck, you'd miss it completely. So you have to anticipate where the puck is going to go. And the, the secret to doing that is to move so that you keep the puck at a constant bearing in space. And this is called the constant bearing strategy. So if you move so that the puck remains due north of you, that's the most efficient strategy, the shortest path to intercept the puck at the right moment. Just before I let you go, are there other, other than sports, because I assume this exists in other parts of our life, are there other places where these same skills or mental skills principles are being used i mean when we're driving is it the same kind of thing that we're doing the same thing we're driving into a is a spatial understanding of where we're going are there other places we do that absolutely driving is a great example because it's a high performance sort of skill with a lot of time pressure but i study walking i just study how people walk around the world and manage not to run into things (laughs) or manage to walk down a busy street right and not collide with all the other pedestrians on the street um, and it's very much the same sorts of strategies. Um, they're just not quite as finely tuned as the athlete that's got to intercept the puck. It is, it is really fascinating. And again, when you, when you watch these guys, or even people walking, as you say, but th- to think of the, the difficulty that's involved in these kind of things, we, I mean, we make it very simple because we've seen it all of our life. People have just done it all of our life. But it's, uh, it, it's a remarkable calculation that goes on in our brain. Uh, really appreciate you doing this. Um, thanks so much for the time tonight. It's a pleasure, Scott. Dr. William Warren from Brown University. I mean, again, stop for just a second, because if, if you've watched a baseball game and you've seen Kevin Pillar or whoever else run, there are infinite, we're talking about an infinite number of places where that ball could possibly land, and a person has to read where that ball is going to go, make a decision, and intercept that in space. Maybe, maybe I'm more fascinated. I, I, to me, it's just it's a remarkable, remarkable thing to think that our brain can figure that out, that we can actually make that calculation on the fly and do that. And essentially, it's, a, it's, it's tricks that our brain is playing and guesses and calculations and strategies and, and guesses and measurements and all these things. It, it, is, it is amazing. Next, next time you go to catch a ball, just think of what you're doing. 
it's not just putting your hand up. Your brain has told you to put your hand where your hand went because it read that the ball was going to be there. I, I find it amazing. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. If you want to ever start a raging argument around the Thanksgiving table, the Christmas table, whatever, and if grandpa and grandma are present specifically, suggest that elderly people should not be driving. They should have their driver's licenses taken away because they are a danger on the road. Some of you have probably brought this discussion up around the table. A few of you even survived when you got the stink eye back from grandma and grandpa. But it's a discussion that never goes away. Whether it's true or whether it's not true, it's a discussion that doesn't go away. It's a stereotype. It's part of what we say. It's a joke. I mean, there are jokes about old people driving. You're driving along the street and you see a car and you don't see a head behind the, you don't see anyone sitting in the car, just two hands on the steering wheel. Ah, it's an old person driving. We know, you know all the jokes, right? There's a widespread belief that older drivers are worse drivers. Not all, but some perhaps, maybe most. We don't know. Well, this new study that is being undertaken, McMaster just got a grant, I believe today, just got a grant to study this, to really look into this and to, to help determine is this true? Is it an urban legend? Is it something that actually has any kind of basis in fact? The, the person who is leading the study is Brenda Verklian, who is the Associate Prester, Professor of Occupational Therapy in the School of Rehabilitation Science at McMaster. She's also the lead investigator of the McMaster CanDrive team, which is a, an elder, a driving... Well, Brenda, tell me what that is exactly. What, uh, now, thank you for joining us, by the way. What is, um, what is CanDrive? Yeah, so uh, I certainly appreciated that introduction. You hit all the major stereotypes that I talk about every day with my <laughs> students here at McMaster and elsewhere. I'm often doing talks at uh, different venues around the city uh, because driving is just so important to people uh, across the lifespan, but particularly in older adulthood. Um, well, it's independence, right? It's, it's absolutely independence. And just the way our... our um, our society is designed, right, in terms of being able to access the places and people that are important to us. Um, you you need a car, and that's the way uh, Canada has really relied on the automobile for many many years. So, uh, Can Drive uh, has been part of my research for the past, I'm going to say, six years, and it's an acronym, not surprisingly. Um, it stands for the Canadian driving research initiative for vehicular safety in the elderly uh, can drive and what it does it brings together um, multiple players around the table including older drivers uh, but also our ministry of transportation geriatricians physicians occupational therapists by myself uh, like myself uh, i shouldn't say i'm by myself because <laughs> the beautiful part about can drives it's bringing all these people together because we want to make sure uh, that we keep people on the road safely for as long as possible uh, because we know driving is so important. Well, let me let me start right at the top here because I, as I was thinking about this today and I knew you were obviously you were coming on, it dawned on me that when you go into a study like this, you are probably in a no-win situation because if you come back with results that say elderly people are a danger on the street, you know that every person over a certain age is going to be throwing shade at you for criticizing them. But if you come back with results that say, no, no, they're, they're all fantastic, you're going to have all kinds of people questioning your methodology. You're, you're not going to be able to win no matter what you do here. Yeah, and I think like that's what's really important, right, is we get, let the evidence tell us. And, and, and the thing is here at McMaster with the recent um, funding that we've got, so uh, here at McMaster, as you know, or as you may know, we've, we've established the McMaster Institute 
Institute for Research on Aging, or MIRA, as we like to call it. And within that, thanks to a donation from our chancellor, uh, Suzanne Labarge, um, who's made a very generous donation, uh, we've established the Labarge Center uh, for Mobility, right? And what's, what we want to do is keep people mobile for as long as possible. We want to optimize uh, people's abilities. And with the CanDrive study, what we did is we actually didn't have a good understanding of, of how people were using their autom automobiles. So in, in older adulthood. So, for example, people will say, oh, I don't drive at night. Um, I don't drive during bad weather. And I mean, that's, you know, people make good decisions, right? And that's very and, common, is it not? Yes. And so what we wanted to do is find out whether people are actually doing that. So we track their health uh, because we know as we get older, our health can change. So it's not, um, it's not the... It's not that the person's, I don't want to like put this all on the person, but it's actually their health and their underlying functional abilities, right, that are changing. Um, and then we, we track that alongside um, uh, a GPS device that was put in their car. So the people here in Hamilton, uh, as well as the other centers uh, of, of research for can drive across Canada. Um, so we had over, um, not, over 900 drivers volunteer. So here in Hamilton, we had uh, upwards of 125 people who had every trip uh, tracked using this GPS device. Uh, so what people say they do versus what they actually do doesn't always match. And so what was helpful about this GPS device, and you can imagine the big data uh, that comes out of that, is we could look at uh, the relationship between, you know, changes in health and how that affected their driving patterns and when they were driving. So, in fact, uh, people are driving uh, during all kinds of weather, um, you know, at night. But the thing is, it's because they want to be able to participate in society, right? When we when you talk, by the way, just so for a baseline here, when we yeah. talk about this study and the people, because I... I it, is the word you use elder or senior, or what was the word that we're talking about here? I use the word older driver. Okay, so what what does that mean? Well, when, where's the bottom for that? Yeah, so that's a good, really good question. And so when we look at um, when we look at you know crash rates overall, not surprisingly, uh, the young driver, eighteen to twenty five, we have to be really concerned about them. And certainly, there's research teams across. Uh, across Canada and around the world looking at the at the young cohort, right, in terms of, but the reason for their crashes are very different from the older driver. The issue is, is when we break it down distance-driven, at age 70, we start to see crash rates kind of that U-shaped curve, so the young driver and the older driver, um, age 70 and older, uh, crash rates start to climb. But the reason for crashes at age 70, not surprisingly, as I said before, is those health-related changes. And some of those cues can be really subtle um, in terms of changes in our thinking, uh, which we refer to as cognition, um, our attention, and just being able to um, uh, monitor all the things in our environment. So it's, it's age 70, we see that. Um, and then certainly things climb uh, quite rapidly at age 85. But also, we didn't before the can drive study have a very good picture of uh, older drivers. So lots of stereotypes and stigma uh, that that uh, related to the older driver, right? So if they were in a crash in the media, that's what gets attention, unfortunately. Well, uh, you know, and again, one of those great stereotypes is that anytime someone, or most times, there's a crash that actually makes it onto the news, or often, it's the one where someone has accidentally hit the gas pedal and plowed through the front window of a Tim Hortons or something because it's, you know, it's, and it's always, well, not always, it's often an older person. And so you go, okay, look, there we go again. Um, 
But those crashes crashes actually are very rare events. And that's why they make it into the news, right? Because they're so unusual. They're very, well, I mean, those types of crashes are rare, let alone that a crash in and of itself. So people make trips every day. So, for example, I was in Toronto today at a meeting. And, you know, to look at our roadways, they're much more congested. Um, Cars have become more affordable as well. So lots of people, you know, um, having cars. Uh, So I just, the independence that comes with driving is really critical. And as an occupational therapist or other healthcare professional, we want to help people do the things that occupy their time. And in fact, in The Spectator today, as you might have seen, um, there was an editorial by Bob Waterhouse, right, that spoke about the value uh, that seniors bring to our economy, right? By participating, by volunteering, uh, lots are still working. So, um, and he spoke a lot about that kind of stigma um, in terms of, uh, you know, seniors have lots to offer. And the car, we want to keep people mobile. That's the can drive focus uh, was to keep people mobile. But now we learn some things, you know, with that thousand driver cohort uh, here in Canada. And now we want to take some of the things that we learned and apply it to big data. And that's why I'm so excited and just feel so fortunate to be at McMaster um, because of the Canadian Longitudinal Study on Aging, uh, which is where we're tracking 50,000 Canadians, right, Hmm. aged uh, 40 and above. And part of that cohort is people aged 65 and older. And there's questions being asked about their transportation, their social participation, and their driving. And so that research is right here. All of that data is right here uh, in Hamilton. Um, So Using that data, I can start to explore along with my team uh, to start to explore whether some of the relationships we found with the you know, smaller study actually do hold true, as you said, uh, in a larger you know, Canadian uh, population. Study. With that small study, and, and mm-hmm. obviously it's going to be, well, I would assume it's going to be a lot clearer after this study has, has been done or as, as we go along. But let, let's go through, if we can, a couple or a few of the stereotypes and tell me if they're actually true. Do older people, do older drivers drive more slowly? So it was interesting because what we did with our cohort here in Hamilton and also in Montreal is even though we had tracked using this GPS device, we didn't see how people were actually driving in mm. their car. So we, what we did, uh, thanks to another network and thanks to all the Canadians out there who support research here in Canada, um, we were able to put cameras uh, in, our, in, a, in some of our participants' vehicles and see how they actually drive. And what we found was when we looked at the, their health, is unfortunately, and this probably won't surprise uh, people out there, is bad bad habits develop over time. So in fact, we didn't see so much a change. Our our cohort was healthy, so to speak, but we actually saw some bad habits and those may be remediable, right? Okay, so it's not that they're uh, health problems, they're just driving problems. Yeah, and so like when you say what we saw is actually our participants were keeping up with the flow of traffic. In some cases, they were speeding the issue is, is when a senior and they're speeding and then they're in a crash, which is still a very rare event, but if they are in a crash, um, yes, we're more likely to survive thanks to safety innovations in the vehicle and people using their seatbelts. But a senior, because of frailty, is more likely to suffer a serious injury. And that has costs uh, for all Canadians because that has implications on our health care. Uh, number one, do older drivers react more slowly? So that's... Uh, 
I mean, it's a debate, right? So if we put people in a lab situation and flash, uh, you know, something on a screen and they're just doing an average reaction time, um, with age, we do tend to slow down. But in a driving environment, there's lots of factors at play and it's multifactorial, as we like to say, right? So it's not that simple. Uh, often when there is a crash, it's only related to slow reaction time, as an example. It has to do with the driving environment, uh, even how we design our intersections, our roadways. So to blame, put all that blame on one element, I would say is impossible. The stats, and this wouldn't come from your study, this would just come from police or whatever insurance. Mm-hmm. Do, are the, do the stats suggest, and you talked about the U-shape, do the stats suggest that older people per capita, per driving capita, do they have more accidents than by a large, I mean, it could probably go up or down, but is it consistently a higher level than those in the 20s or 30s or 40s? So we do see a drop again when we go distance traveled. You see that U-shaped curve. Um, and so, you know, per kilometer, per mile driven, you do see a, uh, an increase in crashes. But that cannot be applied to every older driver, right? Because it's actually the underlying functional ability. So we can't say, you know, at this age, that means this is how people drive. Um, Because we know people can experience, unfortunately, and I see this as an occupational therapist, and my colleagues do as well, is somebody can suffer a stroke, you know, in their 40s. And then that those people need to go through certain testing and certain evaluation before they can return to the roadway. So, you know, we have to be very mindful of age-based criteria. Okay. Now I have two, uh, my dad and my father-in-law are both of the age where they have had to go into the driver's place and at one time or another have had to re-up their license, have had to you know do the check. And I understand that the test that the driving place requires of them is so basic as to almost be useless. Um, you know, draw hour times on a clock or something, like draw two o'clock and a clock or other things. With the studies that you have, not to get seniors not to be driving, but should we be, based on what you know, should we be asking a little more of the seniors to get their license renewed? You know, it's really challenging, and certainly the article in The Spectator and also, um, you know, what Bob Waterhouse wrote around Stats Canada, you know, to take every single person on the road to look at their driving, it would be impossible, um, and and that has huge costs. Secondly, the effectiveness of a road test, ha- you know, the Ministry of Transportation, who are partners on this new study, works very closely with them, um, and they want to keep people safe on the roadways, including older older drivers. Um, You know, they did extensive work to look at whether, you know, a road test is effective, but because that's just like a snapshot in time, as you can imagine, um, people coming in and taking, you know, a road test, that that doesn't necessarily match their real skills. Uh, on the roadway. So they looked at that policy because at one time that did exist um, and they they looked at how they could do a better job. So the program that your um, your father-in-law and father have gone through or, or you know and may go through again is is based on trying to promote people's skills. And what they've added is a couple tests and this is related on an evidence-based review that they did. The other thing is is if people don't do well on those tests. So you talked about uh, clock drawing is one of them. They will not take away somebody's license just because they can't, um, you know, perform well on this cognitive test. Um, There's a lot, there's a big long decision tree around how that's handled because there could be lots of reasons why somebody performs poorly on that. 
Um, so they have to be very, very mindful, and I know the ministry works very hard to analyze that data. If there's any issues, though, they do send people for road tests. Um, and I can tell you as an occupational therapist, and I gave that example before around stroke, um, they will, you know, adaptive equipment, that kind of thing, train, retrain people, and certainly keeping people on our roadways. We only have a minute or so left yes. here. Is there an age? And I, I understand that everybody is different, but would you be of the opinion, having gone through this, being an OT, doing these studies, are you of the opinion that there is an age that we should say either you should stop driving uh, across the board, that when you hit this age, you should be off the road, even if you may, you may be the rare case that can still do it. Is there an age we should say you should stop driving or is there an age we should say, you know what, we should accelerate or make much more in-depth those relicensing things or the renewing your license just to make sure? Like what point do you get when it does start to become a little worrisome? You know, Scott, you're asking like the, I don't I guess we could say billion dollar question now. It is such a challenging issue because there's a cost on both sides. Um, there's a cost um, for that person who, who if it's just based on age, um, and we take away a license. Uh, depression, social isolation uh, has huge issues. In fact, it can lead to institutionalization sooner, which again, in going into long-term care has costs for everybody, families. Um, and then on the other side, you know, uh, helping people stay mobile and healthy um, is really important. So I, you know, Based on my based on the evidence, I wouldn't say about my experience, but that also plays into evidence-based practice, is we have to treat people as individuals because driving, I, uh, I use the term driving is a privilege, but mobility is a right. So we have to make sure that people stay mobile um, and well in the community and certainly the Barge uh, Center on Mobility here at McMaster and people working together, multi- multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary, because it's a challenging issue. So to answer those questions, um, it, you know, these complex questions, uh, it's going to take a, a team to do that. So I'm going to go with no. <laughs> okay. When, now, when will this study wrap up or is it open-ended right now? No. So uh, I have a year uh, to run this study. And so what's beautiful about this is the data has been collected uh, from Canadians, from volunteers uh, right here in Hamilton and across Canada. So I'm able to uh, start analyzing that data uh, right away. So it's, it's pretty exciting. So in about a year from now, I look forward to speaking with you again. I, I, I was just going to say, I'm hoping you're going to come back on here once you have the results, because we'd love to hear if the stuff you said now <laughs> remains the stuff you say. That, hey, you know what? This is you, you follow the numbers, right? You follow That's the right. science. So That's right. it is uh, it is is fascinating. It is also, as I say, one of the rare times I think that science allows us to take on stereotypes and determine whether the stereotype is based on something or nothing. And this is, uh, this makes this one particularly interesting. Uh, Brenda Verklian, thanks so much for doing this tonight. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Scott. I really appreciate you uh, having me on. Uh, We will definitely have Brenda back on a year from now to find out because now I can't see you, maybe your spouse or your family or whoever is nearby, they'll see you, but hands up if you believe the stereotype that older people are worse drivers. Okay. Hands up if you are now, if you believe the opposite, that you believe that older people, you know what, sure there are cases, but by and large, they are just as good as drivers as everyone else. We're going to find out. It may take a year, but we're going to find out. At least we're going to get closer to finding out. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900, CHML.